there is a shot of full frontal nudity. There is. Although I will say it is so tastefully done that I didn't even realize it was happening. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's oh, yeah. okay. That's Richard Gere. But it took me like 30 seconds. Oh, you're in trouble now. Why? 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 Every week for the last 18 weeks, we've highlighted something that we want you to watch. We're mixing it up a little this week and highlighting something we think you should listen to. Don't worry. It's still about movies. We are IMDb after all. Yes. As movie fans, we are completely obsessed with Karina Longworth's award-winning podcast, You Must Remember This. It's an incredible immersive series that explores the secret and forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Past seasons have covered celebrities like Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, and Gossip Queen's Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. She's currently dissecting the exploration of sex and sexuality in 80s cinema with her new season, Erotic 80s. We'll talk about all that as well as two movies you can stream right now as companion pieces, Nine and a Half Weeks and American Gigolo. But first, welcome Karina. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, we're super excited. <laughs> so with this new season, Erotic 80s, can you tell us a little bit about what you're covering? So the idea was basically to try to talk about why sex and adult relationships um, kind of aren't a topic of mainstream Hollywood movies anymore by looking at this recent past where they really were. And um, so that was just like the the very early impetus. But what I found was that there were a lot of reasons why the 80s and and part of the 90s were this really fertile time for this stuff. And a lot of it has to do with the creation of the rating system um, and this sort of push and pull between understanding that an audience wanted a certain amount of sex in movies, but didn't want too much. And so a lot of these movies are sort of trying to figure out where that line is. Yeah. And we've gotten a chance to listen to the first episode, which is out now. It's it's really fascinating. Obviously, you are an excellent film historian, and you've done such a good job of kind of setting up what led up to the 80s. I'm curious which films and celebrities you're planning on covering this season. So the first episode, which is out now, is kind of a prologue. It's set in the 70s, and it's about this really brief period where the X rating was commercially viable. And then from then on, we skip to 1979, and it's one episode per year until we get to 1999. But the first part of the season is just the 80s. So I'm going to be talking about American Gigolo starring Richard Gere, Body Double starring Melanie Griffith, some remakes of classic film noirs like The Postman Always Rings Twice starring mm. Jack Nicholson, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is, you know, kind of this cataclysmic independent film. But it's also coming out at the same time where Hollywood is making this change to the rating system where they go from having the X rating to the NC-17 rating in the hopes of of kind of taking away some of the stigma of the X rating. And, and as we'll see in the second half of the season about the 90s, that doesn't necessarily work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Showgirls will tell you all you need to know about how the NC-17 versus the X did not uh, work. My poor sweet showgirls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even aware that there were several X rated blockbusters. I mean, I guess I, I should have been, but that really surprised me. Oscar winners as well. Yeah. Midnight Cowboy won Best Picture and it was initially X rated. I mean, one of the interesting things about Midnight Cowboy and Last Tango in Paris, which were these two big 
hit movies that were very well respected in the 70s that were rated X is that they were later re-released with no cuts made to them and the MPAA gave them an R rating. And so that's sort of the MPAA understanding that different stand like standards change and also kind of acknowledging that their effort to create this thing called the X rating, which was supposed to be so that filmmakers could artistically explore adult material didn't work because the X rating got co-opted by the porn industry. Hmm. It's so interesting because when I hear like X rated movie, you know, I think of like going through the racks of Blockbuster and like the section that you are not allowed to go near. (laughs) But then you think about Midnight Cowboy in that context and it doesn't like those are so incongruous. It doesn't make sense to me that that was X rated. Right. And it seems pretty tame compared to where these movies would go in the 80s and 90s as well. Right. I mean, in the second episode, I talk about this movie called 10, which was a sex comedy Mm. that was released in 1979 and became this like massive hit that ran into 1980 and created a star out of Bo Derek to the extent Mm. that she was kind of the first sex symbol of the 80s. And that movie has actual porn stars in it who are completely naked in these orgy scenes. And it's, you know, it's filmed in a way where you're not seeing hardcore action, but at the same time, just that amount of nudity and the fact that the whole movie is basically about adultery would have made it an X rating probably 10 years Hmm. earlier, but in 1979, it was an R. Wow. I've never seen that. That's very interesting. That movie's great. And it's, I mean, it's dated in some ways, but I actually think it really holds up as a movie about a middle-aged man who's having to confront his toxic masculinity. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I saw it much younger and it was presented much more as a comedy, a fun, sexy comedy, you know, and not really the context around <laughs> yeah. it. What your podcast does so perfectly is adds that level of context and, and fills them out and gives you what you need to know about these films, not just to enjoy them, but to understand how they changed cinema, how they had the impact that they did or didn't, and like how we can look at them now with our current lens and like see where they led us up to the kind of films that we're making today. And like you said, the kind of missing eroticism from current films. Yeah, that's actually a question I have for you, because you do such a good job on this series of sort of showing how many of these films can be both revolutionary and problematic. But how do you recommend listeners approach some of these films and discussion of these films, given that nowadays we are somewhat more uncomfortable with that duality, I think? Well, I hope that somebody who um, is, you know, sort of needing a trigger warning for things will listen to the episodes before they watch the movies. And that will kind of give them a guide as to, you know, whether or not they'll be comfortable seeing these things. I mean, I... I think that, for instance, you know, in the first episode, I talk about Last Tango in Paris and how it was it sort of came out of this moment of sexual revolution. And for a long time, it was perceived as a document of sexual liberation. But later it was reframed because the star Maria Schneider uh, basically equated shooting the movie to sexual assault. And so if you if you hear that and you know that and you see Last Tango in Paris as a document of sexual assault and you don't want to see that, I think that's fine. Um, I think everybody kind of needs to decide what their own boundaries are. And, um, you know, I think that different from a lot of my past seasons, which are not necessarily (laughs) about this kind of material, um, (laughs) you know, not every movie is going to be for everyone. Um, But, you know, I hope that there are enough people who um, find things to enjoy in these films. Last Tango in Paris is not my personal favorite film. So that's Mm. one where I feel a little bit um, easier about saying like, okay, if it's not for you, it's not for you. I think some of these other movies um, 
I'm a little bit like, well, I understand if it's not for you, but I hope there are people who want to engage with them. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of framing that. Is there one thing that you learned in researching the subject matter that like really surprised you? I think that something that really surprised me was the way that feminism of the late 70s and early 80s was extremely anti-pornography, extremely yeah. anti the depiction of, of basically any kind of filmed or photographed sex. And on that side, or in that sense, they were kind of on the same side as conservative Christians and Republicans. And so I just think that there's just something really interesting there in terms of these two forces kind of working together, even though politically and in terms of women's rights, which were still very, very shaky, even though there was Mm -hmm. a lot of conversation about like, well, equality has been achieved, so we don't have to do anything anymore. Um, (laughs) You know, they these two forces should have been working against each other. But when it came to sexuality, they were working for the same thing. And I and I do think that has like some impact on the kind of stalled progress in a lot of ways. I mean, I talk about this a lot more in later seasons, this idea of the backlash to feminism and how that manifested in culture, including movies. That's so fascinating. And I can't wait to hear you explore it more throughout the season. So Karina gave me and Alex some homework for this episode. Um, We watched two movies in preparation for this discussion, American Gigolo, which is streaming on HBO Max, and Nine and a Half Weeks, which is available to rent on Prime Video and other services. All right, let's jump right into American Gigolo. It's released in 1980, written and directed by Paul Schrader, who you may know from writing films like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and more recently, he wrote and directed First Reformed and The Card Counter. Great. I love American Gigolo. Me too. (laughs) It's really good. This film uh, stars Richard Gere, Hector Elizondo, Lauren Hutton, Nina Van Palant, and more. Uh, The synopsis, according to IMDb, a Los Angeles male escort who mostly caters to an older female clientele is accused of murder, which he did not commit. Yeah, I had never seen this before. So thank you for for recommending this. This movie really fascinated me because, yes, like he plays an escort – In the film, but contrary to how I think we've seen a lot of women playing escorts in film portrayed, he doesn't seem it doesn't seem positioned as a career that he needs to be rescued from or wants to like exit at all. Yeah. And it's not aspirational necessarily either. No, there's there's a lot of the other side of the darkness of it, especially as it, it devolves towards the end. I mean, one of the things that I found was really interesting in reading about the film is that Um, Paul Schrader talked about the reason why it's American gigolo is because he was thinking of it as this sort of quintessential story, like a Horatio Alger story of class passing um, Mm. about this guy who has to kind of become this self-created creature to um, like have the lifestyle that he wants. Um, And so I I do think it glamorizes like his Armani clothes and the sort of beautiful spaces he's able to gain access to. But it also makes Mm -hmm. it very clear that he's on a precipice and like anything could knock him off. Yes. Every conversation he has is a transaction, which is so perfect for Hollywood and filmmaking. And I'm sure how Schrader felt uh, about his own career and where he had gone to that point. But yeah, it's it's not aspirational, even if they do glamorize some of the fashion and, you know, giving him a Giorgio Armani designed prison uniform also helps to make it seem like uh, maybe things aren't so bad in the end. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so much of this movie is so seductive just in the way it's designed. Um, uh, Strader was very inspired by another Bernardo Bertolucci film, The Conformist, 
Um, oh, yes. Which, and so he used the same art director to try to bring this kind of glossy Italian aesthetic to 1980 Los Angeles. And this movie is very sexy, which I, I was not expecting because I, for some reason, Richard Gere, I mean, I, I think he's an amazing actor. He's never particularly appealed to me. And then I watched this and I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, he really um, with this movie, he kind of started a new forefront of male sexiness in Hollywood. Um, you know, the previous generation of stars had been like Al Pacino and Dustin Hoffman, who can be sexy, yeah. but like not they're not really foregrounding their sexuality. And here he really was, um, you know, sort of with the perfect body, the perfect clothes. And there is a shot of full frontal nudity. There is. Although I will say it is so like tastefully done that I didn't even realize it was happening. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's oh, yeah. OK. That's Richard Gere. But it took me like 30 seconds. <laughs> that's and it comes right after that sex scene. Right. That's in that kind of liminal space of just bodies yeah. and sheets, uh, which is such an interesting Hand, way to like. Disembodied yeah. hands. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> to put to build a sex scene like that out of kind of the parts of a human body and make it seem, you know, kind of just take it out of the sensuality, I guess. I don't know. It was still pretty, pretty sexy scene, but an odd way to represent it for sure. Yeah, I think Schrader's really influenced by European filmmakers of the 60s and 70s. You know, I mean, he all of his movies in some sense are kind of a remake of Robert Brisson films. Um, yes, like this it, is pickpocket, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and so is the card counter. Oh, yeah. Course. And then, of course, we got to shout out Giorgio Moroder, right, for this mm -hmm. incredible score. Uh, it gave us Call Me by Blondie. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not and, know that. And yeah. 100 different variations of it as well, including like a sad Call Me version <laughs> yes. when his life's kind of spiraling <laughs> that I think I might even like better than Call Me. And that's I, I love Blondie. That's like one of my favorite bands, one of my favorite songs. And the sad meditation on it just takes it in this different direction that I, I really pure vibes and just amazing ones. Yeah, I actually, before I ever saw this movie when I was a teenager, I bought the soundtrack on vinyl mm. um, because I love the Blondie song so much. And then it has become, you know, over the past, you know, 25 years or so, um, you know, definitely something to put on like when you're getting ready to go out for the night. <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing idea. For fans who are not familiar with Giorgio Moroder, he is a three-time Oscar winner. Um, he won Best Original Score for Midnight Express, Original Song for Flashdance, What a Feeling, classic, and then also for Take My Breath Away from Top Gun. Right, and he's also on the latest uh, or most recent Daft Punk album. He he collaborated oh, wow. with him. Yeah, he's <laughs> there's actually a Moroder song that he speaks on and everything. Daft Punk helped bring him to a new generation more recently and kind of back to the forefront. But yeah, he's been doing incredible synth work for for decades. Yeah, a lot of Donna Summer too, I think, a ton of her hits. Well, Flash Dance is also a topic of the podcast this season. That's a movie that I feel like doesn't get the credit it deserves. You know, in doing research about it, people, when that movie came out, really, like critics really hated it. People in Hollywood were like, you know, what, like, what a terrible movie and just like sort of holding their nose when it made so much money. But I think that it's really ripe for reappraisal. It's a movie that really like centers what a young woman wants in a way that you don't see very often. Yeah. A welder who is also a stripper who <laughs> wants to be a ballerina. And why not? And that, that, <laughs> that tagline is one of the reasons why people were so against it at the time, because it was this, the very beginning of what would come to be known as this idea of high concept, you know, movies mm -hmm. that where you could say what it is in one sentence and then it right. almost it almost doesn't even matter what the movie is. People want to go see it when they hear that sentence. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. 
Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Well, I think we'll move on to the second companion piece that you had us watch, which is Nine and a Half Weeks, um, released in 1986, directed by Adrian Lyne, who also uh, you may know from Fatal Attraction, also Flashdance, Indecent Proposal, and most recently Deep Water, starring Ana de Armas and Ben Affleck. It is written by Patricia Louisiana Knopp, an amazing name, and Zalman King, based on the novel by Elizabeth McNeil. Stars Mickey Rourke, Kim Basinger, and an assortment of goos from Mickey Rourke's refrigerator. And um, the synopsis, according to IMDb, I love this synopsis. It is just, a woman becomes involved with a man she barely knows. Complications develop during their sexual escapades. Accurate. I mean, technically, yes, that's it. You said, give him one sentence and make him want to see the movie. It does have a rating on IMDb of 5.9 stars out of 10 with 40,000 ratings. Yeah, I'm not surprised this is rated a little bit lower. I mean, it's definitely a controversial film, certainly one that's not for everyone. Um, But one of the things I love about it is I think it's Adrian Lyne's sort of best directorial um, effort and just in terms of the aesthetic. and, And he does something that I think is really special where he makes these movies where you have this vibe of constant sex, but... Actually, a lot of what you're seeing is not sex. Like that yes, scene yes. you're talking about of him, Rick, Mickey Rourke feeding Kim Basinger stuff from their fridge. It's filmed yes. and presented like it's a sex scene, but it is not. No, it's it's exploration, I guess, but set to the bread and butter bread and song butter. by New Beats, which I most associate with like a Walmart commercial, I believe it was most recently. But it's definitely like a commercial jingle kind of song. The scene is sexy at the beginning and then once that song comes in i couldn't help but laugh at just kind of the silly but i think there is kind of a silly you know aspect to this like a silly kind of vibe that runs through this and those scenes for me really played well i think when it gets less serious the movie really really is able to communicate like what it wants about the kind of finding each other and becoming romantically involved in each other. And it's, it takes the edge off of some of that seriousness of some of the other sex scenes. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's based on this book that um, was written under a pseudonym by like mm-hmm. a powerful book publisher who had been in this S&M relationship and had kind of fallen into it. And then pretty quickly it turned into what she felt was horrible abuse. Um, And when they turned it into a Hollywood movie, they turned it into something else. And Mm. so I like I I don't know if it's necessarily a good adaptation of that book. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think what I love about Nine and a Half Weeks is kind of what you're saying of how it, it, it is able to mix all these different tones together. And it really, to me, evokes a short affair, an affair of two and a half months of, you know, just kind of getting swept up on a wave of emotion. And yeah. not like maybe not even realizing what's happening until you're kind of in it too deep. And so sometimes you're laughing, sometimes you're scared. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, one of the things that's also really special about the movie is that it makes the viewer 
have to sort of decide what they think is happening sometimes. It doesn't force feed you with, is this okay? Is this consensual? Is she being forced to do these things? Um, You have to kind of determine for yourself what's happening. Yeah. And it's like, in that way, it is at some points an uncomfortable watch. Um, But I think what was so fascinating about this movie is just like you're saying, it really makes you, it makes you kind of hold those opposites at the same time. Like there are elements of this movie that are really sexy. There are elements of this relationship that are really sexy. There are elements that are clearly abusive. Although as you're saying, they are fewer in the film than I think that they are in the memoir. Right. I think they actually shot some of those sequences as well in the five hour version and then decided to scale them back to more the romantic part of the relationship instead of when it gets more abusive. One of the examples of how the tone of Nine and a Half Weeks is really unstable and to me very fascinating. There's this montage in the middle of the film set to the um, Brian Ferry song, Slave to Love. And it feels like it's this romantic comedy montage. But what you're actually seeing is him um, making her stand in the rain without an umbrella while he has an umbrella and then feeding her soup in bed when she gets sick from that. Um, and so it's yeah. almost like anticipating phantom thread or something where it's like Ooh, you know, yeah. this idea of like part of our sort of sex play is, um, yeah. you know, pushing each other into the realm of unwellness, but it's presented like it's a rom-com. And I think that that's the kind of thing that is sort of, it's really easy to just take it in and not think about it. But when you actually think about what's happening there, what's being communicated is very complicated. And I think a couple other things that we do have to call out about this. One is that it feels very much like a precursor to Fifty Shades um, in so many ways. But it's so interesting because this film does not do what Fifty Shades does in terms of like going going to great lengths to make it very clear that everything in that is consensual. That's not the case here, um, which which is strange and interesting to see. I mean, I think one thing that's really different about Fifty Shades of Grey is that it turns it into this sort of world-beating romance um, Mm -hmm. where you kind of get the sense that she's submitting to the S&M stuff because she loves him so much. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, this is sort of a one true pairing, whereas I feel like nine and a half weeks is more like life is where you meet somebody and like you're really attracted to them and you're kind of sucked into their world, but you're not sure about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is, I think, what makes it kind of an uncomfortable viewing experience. One other thing that we will call out about nine and a half weeks, there was a New York Times article that came out shortly after it was released um, that did detail a bit of Adrian Lyne's directing approach to Kim Basinger, um, which is questionable. Alex, I, I I know you have strong feelings on this as well. Um, it's not an uncommon thing to hear that a director sort of feels like their actors need to uh, like not act, but be like made to actually right. feel uncomfortable. And it sounds like that was the case here. Yeah, there's that level of manipulation where you think that that a director feels they need to pull out truth from a performance and, you know, it ends up scaring or hurting or, you know, just traumatizing in some ways their their stars to get something that's closer to a real reaction, which is not necessary. It's acting. And, you know, I think there was some levels of that. And, you know, also, as I mentioned, that five hour version of the film, I think was where some of the more uncomfortable, depraved and, you know, things that Kim Basinger didn't feel comfortable with. And she took those uh, dailies back and, you know, has them in her own vault saying, 
I'm not giving these to the world. The world doesn't need to see these. And I think there was, you know, a push and pull with her and Adrian line that, um, led to some of these uncomfortable conversations that she was left out of. And it's it's a similar situation as, Karina, you you set up in Last Tango in Paris, where the actress was not made aware of what she was being put through in a detrimental way to her psyche, to her life, instead of, you know, to a character that right. she's portraying. Right. I think that I, I don't want to put all the onus on Adrian Lyne, because my understanding is that Mickey Rourke was um, yes. also right. yes. part of the idea that this should be a psychological game that we do in real life and we film it. And that comes out of his process as an actor, at least at that time. And and that's mm-hmm. something that I'm definitely going to focus on in my episode on Nine and a Half Weeks. You know, I mean, another thing that's interesting about this movie is that, you, as you said, it was written by Zalman King and Patricia Louisiana Knopp, who are a married couple. And oh. they, mm-hmm. they actually um, were married for, I think, 35 years. And Zalman King... Um, after this film kind of became the king, no pun intended, of a certain type of softcore. Um, yep. He created the Red Shoe Diaries and he made another movie with um, with Mickey Rourke called Wild Orchid. Um, oh, right. And he okay. made all of these movies as collaborations with his wife. And so it, there is an interesting dichotomy between like Adrian Lyne and Mickey Rourke kind of teaming up to psychologically manipulate Kim Bassinger versus... Um, this, this, you know, husband and wife writing team who, you know, end up being kind of committed to showing a different type of sex on screen. I had never seen this. I'm glad that I've seen it. And it is interesting. I don't think that this movie could be made today. Yeah. I I mean, I don't think either of these movies could be made today. And it's interesting that there is a, I guess, TV miniseries of American Gigolo in the works. And I I don't understand. (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't know any, I don't know enough about it, but, um, it seems like American Gigolo is such a time capsule. And so Mm -hmm. I just don't, I don't know if you update it or you do it as a period piece, but I'm interested to find out. Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating character. And I I do love the way that he tackles the sort of murder mystery of it all in there as well. Although I will say, it's like 40 minutes before anybody's dead in American (laughs) Gigolo. So if any true crime fans are signing up for an exclusively murder movie, it is not. (laughs) Well, it's like 40 minutes before anybody has sex in nine and a half weeks. They make you wait for it in the 80s. (laughs) Well, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed watching these two companion pieces. And as always, you must remember this is absolutely essential listening for film lovers out there. So we hope that our audience will definitely check out this season. Cool. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. We would love to hear what you think, both about the new season of You Must Remember This and also the two movies that we discussed today, should you choose to watch them. You can always email us at obsessedpodcast at imdb.com, or you can tweet at imdb with the hashtag imdbisobsessed. See you soon. Bye. Bye.